Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. I get to spend a lot of time with people that are new on the journey of faith, that are just discovering God. They have a lot of questions about God in the Bible. And one of the common lines of questions that come up relate to the Bible. It's a big Bible. It's a big book. What's it all about? It's hard to read, hard to understand. Where do you find things? And you know, what I tell people simply this is it's not as hard to understand as you might think. Uh, You just need to read it. You just need to dig through And people say, well, where should I start? And I I go, well, right in the beginning. It's really good. It's a great story. It starts right there. If you've ever made it through all the Bible, or let me say this, if you've made it through Leviticus and then you've made it through all the Bible, you know, that's a pretty awesome journey. It really is. Uh, But when you kind of think about the Bible, we think about this big book. But the truth is, it's not really a book. It's a library of books. That's what the word Biblos means, this collection of books. And it's actually a collection of 66 books. And that's a stretch to call some of them books because they were letters in the New Testament in particular. Some of them are very short, just one chapter, a couple chapters. They were letters that people wrote. But within those books or letters all put together, they contain a message and it's a cohesive message. And it's really fascinating when you think about it, because the Bible was written uh, 66 books uh, from about a little more than 40 different authors. It's a lot of authors. Uh, over a span of 2,000 years, three different continents, three different languages. And if you were to grab people and say, hey, I want to put you in a room and take a lot of time and write about God or isolate people around the world, you write a story about God, let's bring them together. It would not be cohesive. But the Bible from beginning to end has one message. And the message is that there is a God who exists and he loves us and he created us to have a relationship with us. I mean, Just think about it from the very beginning of the Bible, creation talks about uh, Genesis chapter one and two, that God spoke and he created everything. And then he put mankind, Adam and Eve in the garden with all the animals. And he had a walking, talking, living, breathing relationship. He would come down and relate to them and talk with them. And there was no brokenness. There was no shame. There was no sin. In fact, it says they were naked and not ashamed. And this idea is that they had no brokenness, no sin, no struggle between each other or between them and God. But then, of course, it all fell to pieces, as we know, because the world we live in is broken uh, because they sinned against God. And the result was they got kicked out of Eden and it just sin after sin after sin. And it gets depressing and dark. And that's really the story of our existence in humanity is that we have good seasons. We have a lot of bad seasons. Uh, you know, if you come to the Bible, you see people struggle, people fight, people kill, people murder, people commit adultery. People do all kinds of things. And yet God still doesn't give up 
up on us. He still loves us and he pursues us and he pursues this plan to redeem us, to purchase us back from the market of sin. It's called a slave market. We're all bound to sin, struggle with sin from birth. We struggle with sin and God wants to call us to himself, make us his children, a people from Abram, Abraham, we see that with Moses. God keeps communicating messages about his hope for us and his desire for us and how to make ourselves in such a way that we line up with God's purpose for us, but we still struggle with that. So ultimately, the Bible says God himself came down in the form of Jesus. So this God, fully God, fully man uh, combination comes down to speak the message of love, to heal, to minister, to touch people, to teach people. But then really for the purpose of dying, dying on a cross. Now, not that the cross itself was particularly important. It was just the Roman execution style of the time, but very symbolically on the cross as Jesus's arms were spread out and he died on the cross on his shoulders, on his back, he carried the weight of our sin. See, up to the point of falling and, and being separated from God, we had been trying to take care of our sin problem. And God had set a lot of rules in place about that. But it was ultimately Jesus who did it. He paid for all of it. And on the cross, the Bible says, for three hours, the sky grew dark as God put upon his son all of the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, past, present, future. Anybody that was born, anybody that will be born. Jesus willingly died so that the penalty, the punishment of sin... Uh, that, that we would be spending eternity away from God paying, he would pay for that. And so now he dies on a cross and, and to prove that he's dead, he's buried for three days and then he rose again, resurrected. God you know, brings him back to life again and then he appears to a lot of people to prove he's resurrected, 500 at one time the Bible says, and he commands then us to go out and propagate this message, to share this message with everybody, that there is hope, there is possibility, there is new birth, new life with God through this message of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, finally, at some point, he's going to come back and he's going to have created a place for us and he's going to bring it down. He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth and he's going to bring this new Jerusalem, this city down. Now, the cool thing is if you go to the first two chapters of Genesis, it's all about the beauty of God's creation here on the earth through this garden and this Adam and Eve, this man and woman, and God walks and talks with them. And the very last two chapters, those bookends are about the new heaven and the new earth. God recreates and we live with God, not really in a garden. There's a garden there, but in a city. Now that's the whole Bible. I mean, how hard is that to understand, right? I mean, that just took like four minutes, you know, there's the story right there. But as we think about this, we end up with a lot of ideas, some right, some wrong about God. And as the pastor and author A.W. Tozer said, he said, it's really important what comes to our minds when we think about God. In fact, it's the most important thing about us. When we think about God, what pops into our mind? Uh, some people think about God and they think he's a tyrant and he's all about murder and mayhem. Some people think that God is this cosmic cop. Apologies to any uh, police that are here today. I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but we, we, uh, we don't like you when you're in your uniform in your car because we're afraid of you because you could write us a ticket and pull us over when those red and blue lights go on, right? I mean, we, you know, we like you without the uniform, but there's a little panic moment when a cop shows up, right? We all think that if you've, if you've ever driven a car, as soon as you see, you stop, you put on the brakes, you pull over, you don't really know. You, you must have done something wrong, right? 
We think that's God. God is a list of rules. He put them together. He wants to trip us up. He wants to catch us. He wants to be behind the billboard as we drive our life by and pull out and ha ha, I gotcha and write us a ticket. That's our view of God. And then we live accordingly. Other people view God as a waiter. Uh, excuse me, God, could you come and fill my water again? Um, here's what I'd like on the menu, God. This is what I'm ordering because I'm in control. And if you do a really good job, I will tip you at the end of the meal. And I'll give you a little bit. Maybe I'll give you some good works. I'll give you some church attendance or things like that. And that's all because I'm really gracious to you. Uh, some people view God as like a Santa Claus or a vending machine or as a butler who we put our list to him. And that's his obligation to take care of that for us. I do this. You do this for me. I put the quarter in the machine. You better give me the soda, right? Or the candy bar. If not, I start kicking you. Okay. Because you need to do this because I did this. Now you're responsible for doing that. Others of us view God very distant, very disconnected, kind of like the old grandpa or great grandpa on the porch a little senile hard of hearing you know the old grandpa with the little horn that he holds like this you know what i mean drooling a little bit into the beard maybe some of lunch left over on this side you know nice old guy i'm not talking about you sam um (laughs) okay maybe i am wendy right yeah yeah i am definitely um you know but just disconnected it's like yeah it's great but that was way back when you know i'm living now Nice stories of thousands of years ago, but what about today? Is there any relevance with God? What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do we envision God to be? Well, thankfully, the Bible does spend a lot of time talking about God. And the psalm we're going to look at today spends a lot of time talking about God. Now, there are different psalms in the Bible. There's 150 of them. And through the spring and the summer, we're looking at maybe 18 or 20 of them. We're kind of picking the ones. I'm, I'll be honest. I'm the teacher, so I'm picking the ones I like and the ones that have meant a lot to me. If you have one that really means a lot to you, I still have slots open. So email them to me and I'll get to work on those. But one of the psalms that means the most to me. In fact, when I thought years ago about preaching and teaching the Psalms, this was the premier Psalm I couldn't wait to get to. And it was a Psalm that was a teaching Psalm. Some of the Psalms are, uh, they're lament Psalms. We'll get to that in a month where we just cry out to God that life is unfair. God is unfair. Something's broken in the world. Sometimes we call out to God because we have a need. We have a help. Sometimes they're praise Psalms and just kind of worshiping God. We looked at that with Psalm 19 about the stars and the sky and how they reveal God. But today's psalm is a teaching psalm, and it's a psalm that reveals three really important truths about God through this set of visuals that David, the author, puts together. And then one really, truly important thing about ourselves, and it's Psalm 139. So if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 139. Psalms are easy to find. Open your Bible, falls in half. If you have an electronic Bible, that doesn't work. Uh, Page 476 is our psalm that we'll look at. And uh, three great things about God that we learn. And David writes this psalm. And I think it's a psalm of intimacy. It's a psalm where David describes God in very close, personal ways. But in doing so, he teaches us some theology. So you're going to learn a couple theological words today and concepts. But as always, they do it in pictures and metaphors and things that we can visualize. And David is really, truly good for that. So this is how the psalm begins. He starts by talking about God being all-knowing. The theological term is omniscient. But it just means he knows everything. There's nothing that 
God doesn't know. God knows everything. In the first six verses, he says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. The word searched is the Hebrew word that meant to do an exhaustive, uh, like looking through a record kind of search. It was used of surveying a land of kind of like being Indiana Jones, going out there, figuring out what's there or going into the earth, the cave to dig deep to find something or uh, like a lawyer, you know, doing an exhaustive search to understand all the parameters of the legal case. God, you have searched me. You have examined me. You've opened me up, God, and you know everything about me is how David starts this psalm. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. It's very personal. You have a relationship with me. You know me. He says, you know, when I sit and when I rise. Now, that seems kind of simple. If I stand up or sit down, you know me. It's like, okay. But what David is going to do and going to build on is all these spatial directional type up, down, in and out, back and forth type terms to help us understand God is everywhere and all knowing and all powerful. So God knows everything. You know, when I sit, when I rise, oh, you perceive my thoughts from afar Um, I could go to the furthest place and you already know what I'm thinking. You already know everything about me. You've laid me open bare and you know my thoughts. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Not only that, you know, you know the future. You know the possibility. You know exactly what I'm going to say before I even think it. Before the word hits my tongue, you know all that, God. There isn't anything that you do not know. You know everything. Now, the cool thing is David makes this personal because this is his God. And he says, you know all the things in the world, but you know all about me. And this is not a threat to David. It's a threat to us sometimes. We think, you know, is God going to find out? Well, he already knows. He knows it before we do it. That's not anything to be afraid of. David takes comfort in the knowledge that God is all knowledge. He knows everything. He says here, you hem me in behind and before. This word him uh, in the Hebrew language would be uh, some way to create a place of safety to put a treasure into. So let's say you have a treasure box or you put a safe together. You know, you, you have this way of fencing something. You have an animal that you love. You, you fence it in, you know, and you create this set of boundaries. You put this thing you love in and that's protecting it. See, the truth of the Bible is, is that there, there are yeses, there are noes. There are a lot of things the Bible says not to do. A lot of things the Bible says to do. But the reason God tells us that is because he knows. He knows the right and the wrong of life. He knows what would happen to us if we did certain things or what will happen to us when we do certain things. So he says no to things and he says yes to things. But what God is doing is creating a place of safety for us. Now, I, I understand that at times it doesn't feel like that. At times, it feels very restrictive. Let's use the analogy of mom and dad and, and, and children, right? I mean, kids push those boundaries, right? They do that. A mom and dad who says, well, I'm never going to say no to my kid, doesn't love their child. <laughs> and they don't love other people, especially on airplanes, okay? <laughs> Trust me, I've been there, you know? But a mom and dad who knows the fences, the boundaries, creates those, and the son or daughter lives freely within those. Yeah, they push against the boundaries, right? I know I can get an amen on that. They do. But once they know that the boundaries are there, they kind of relax and they live in freedom. We were all created to have such boundaries. And it's not restrictive. 
I mean, it is in a way, but it's actually protective. It's, it's, it's God's desire for us. So when God in his word tells us to do certain things or don't do certain things, it's because he knows the future of what would happen if we did it. And he wants our best, his best for us. And so he gives commands and moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you know, the reason he gives the commands isn't because he wants to kill all of our joy or restrict us from something that would be great for us. It's because he himself is a God who has a character and a heart that he wants us to live out. So for example, when God says, don't lie, and a lot of verses talk about that, be truthful people, speak the truth in love. He gives all those precepts, all those commands, because there are principles deeply embedded in the truth of scripture and life. And the precept of don't lie or speak the truth or whatever is about truth. And, and God wants honesty and integrity in us as people. Now, the cool part about it is when we live that, and I know we don't always, but when we live that, God provides for us great relationships. If we're lying and being you know, dishonest all the time, habitual liars, manipulative liars, deceitful liars. Um, we don't have good relationships. We're just using people or hiding the true self that we have, trying to spin all these words over here, keep all these relationships going with our lies. That's not the way God wants us to live. He wants us to be at peace with one another. And when we do that, we're free and our relationships are free and he protects us and provides for us these beautiful things. But the whole reason why he does that is because that's who he is. The very person of God is a God of honesty and truth. So throughout the scriptures, no matter what the issue, whether it's truth or sexuality or money, honesty, things like that, God hymns us in for our good so that we could be more and more like him. So David says, you hem me in behind and before you have laid your hand upon me. And I love it. He just stops. It's it, now I just imagine this. You could ask him later. I'll, I'll maybe ask him later. One of these years, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's like he writes this and it's like puts the pen down. It's like, wow, I am blown away. Not by what I just wrote. That's arrogance, but by God. I am absolutely floored by you, God. When I consider all of these things about you, um, man, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. I, I just, man, I just am marveling at the fact that God knows everything. And I'm not threatened by that because I want him to know me. Then he goes on to the second theological truth, uh, omnipresence or that God is everywhere, all present He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And then he uses these spatial terms again to talk about this. It's really a poetic device of parallels and opposites to describe something. It's it's beautiful poetry. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The right hand was the hand of power, the hand of strength. Sorry, lefties. Sorry about that, Seth. Um, you know, but the right hand was a symbol of, of everything that the king or the one in power had. You would sit at the king's right hand. Um, that would be a place of honor. He would rule with his right hand. God, many times in the Old Testament, talks about God's hand, strong hand, right hand. And so he says, your right hand, your, your, your power, your might will hold me. If I were to say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Now, a little thing about this psalm. 
I love this psalm. This has been a psalm that's meant so much to me. The beginning of this psalm for me uh, stretches back to high school. But when I was in college down in Salem, uh, Western Baptist College, now Corbin University, I was a night watchman. And I walked around at night and uh, I just walked around at night. And I talk about boring and scary at times because, man, when it's dark and the shadows play tricks, it's, you know, when you're up at two in the morning walking around and you hear noises. Oh, I forgot to tell you, we were surrounded by prisons. Yeah. And every once in a while, there'd be a prison break. Yeah. A uh, little, little side note there. Um, and you'd get the call, prison break. You know, all it meant, they walk across, try to break into cars, take things or whatever. You know, I remember, uh, you know, thinking, I need to memorize some scripture to help me. And I chose Psalm 139. It admits something to me. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And I took Psalm 139 inside and I memorized it in this translation. And I quoted it and quoted it. And I walked around at night. And things like this, you know, it's like, surely the darkness, you know, if I think this will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. God, you see everything. So God's my protector. He knows me. And so I'm a young man walking the hills of this school at night, in the middle of the night, memorizing scripture, quoting scripture. Now, one of the reasons why I did it, to be honest, is to stay awake. It seems kind of lame, but I did it because I didn't want to fall asleep because there were clocks I had to punch. And more importantly, um, I had to turn a boiler on at a certain time and it was run by, you know, heat through water. And if you didn't do that at a certain time, then you would go to breakfast and everybody would hate you, especially the ladies, because all the water was cold on campus. And everybody knew if the night watchman fell asleep because everybody got a cold shower. Okay. All right. So I never wanted that to happen to me. So I had to stay awake. So I memorized Psalm 139. I quoted as I walk around. And then as the years passed, I started quoting it as I would go to sleep at night. And so 30 years ago, I memorized it at least 20 years ago. I started quoting as I go to sleep. I did it last night again. I just, as soon as my head hits the pillow, I start, Oh Lord, you search me and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Usually by the time I get to this part right here, the words are jumbled up and I'm really making up my own translation that doesn't make sense. And I'm gone. All right. It's uh, for me, it's a nice way to fall asleep. I rarely make it to the end. Okay. I rarely make it to the end. So this is a Psalm that's comforted me because God knows all about me. God has all of this knowledge And he's everywhere, and I should rest in safety because of that. And then David goes to the third part of the teaching about this, is that God has all power, but he does it in a very personal way. He's already talked about God's knowledge and presence, but now it's his power. And he speaks about it from his own thoughts of his birth. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together. I love the beautiful pictures here. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully weird. I'm made. I'm right, guys. It's a good book. Fearfully and wonderfully weird. Uh, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame, speaking of like his internal skeleton organs, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. So David goes on to talk about the marvel and the mystery of, of a birth, of a, of a human being, a little boy, a little girl being born in a mother. And, and some of you moms know this, you know, you, 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 you're aware of this, you think about this, some of you are like, yeah, I'm really glad that one's over, right? You know, I had enough of them, I'm done. But, you know, if, if you're here and, and you're, you're pregnant, you've got this baby inside of you, you know, it's a mystery, it's this marvel. God is actively, intricately detailed in the 
creation of every human being. And then there's this mysterious physical and spiritual component where, you know, in conception, we believe uh, the spirit, the soul goes into a person and this baby is born. And through those nine months or however many it takes, if it's longer, you know, or shorter, uh, this baby is being put together by God. Now, I know physically and scientifically, we can see how this works, um, but there's a mystery to it. That God does all these things inside the protective frame of this mother. And so David just marvels at his own birth. He says, when I think about your power, I mean, it's no more evident than in the human body. I mean, we think about how we're made, how we're, we're formed and fashioned, how we grow up. It all starts in that moment of inception when all of a sudden this, this, this birth happens and it begins to grow. And David marvels. And now we saw this last week, not just about birth. David talks about all of his life, the end of his life. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. From the moment I was conceived, God, to the moment I pass away, you know, all my days, nothing takes you by surprise. You have ordained, you have put together my life, God. You have that much power. And he marvels at that. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. I was a high school student, you know, adolescent, in that awkward phase of life, junior high, early high school. And, um, you know, I, I came to the realization I thought God had ripped me off. I was disappointed in God. I didn't like certain things about my life, my, my way I had a personality, the way my family, you know, was economically. I didn't have the abilities other people had. I didn't have the looks other people had. And I was really um, disappointed in God. And I voiced it every once in a while. You know, you, you could have done better, you know, kind of thing. But that's, that's like every human being at 12 to 14, right? Or 15. We go through this inferiority complex, right? And we get inferior. We think things that if, if I had, if I had more looks, better looks, more money, if I had more abilities, I could be popular. People would look at me and we all feel that way. Okay. Even the rich, beautiful people feel that way. All right. Um, well, you know. We're disappointed at times. And that was me. And I went to this youth conference and the person was reading Psalm 139, probably one of the first times I'd ever heard it, been exposed to it. Just a young teenager. And he's talked about this and how we, we are all disappointed and we're all nodding. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And I said, here's, how, here's what I want you to do. Stand up if you're disappointed in the way God made you. And a lot of, every junior higher stood up, okay? That's why junior high is like hell on earth, right? Because everybody feels the same way. We're just too proud to admit it, right? And so we poke at everybody, right? And, and he said, you know, I want to read this verse to you. And he read this passage and it was that God made you exactly the way he wanted to make you because he has a purpose and a design for you. And you are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You have been handcrafted and designed the way he made you. And you can look around. We all look different, right? We, we, you know, we have our own valuation of what's good and bad, which is really kind of ridiculous, but we do that. But God looks at us and he sees us and he loves us and he made us the way we are because that's what he wanted us to be. Now, that doesn't mean we can't make mistakes in our lives and mess things up. I'm not saying that that's not important. But what's important is when you look at you in the mirror, God loves you 
And he made you that way. And he wants to reveal himself to you that way. And he wants to shine that way through you. And he wants to shine to the world around us the way you are. So quit trying to be somebody else and just be yourself, right? But be the, ma- the person God made you to be. And David says, when I think about myself, I marvel at you, God. Thank you for making me. He's not conceited. He's just acknowledging that God knew and God designed and put him together in a certain way. That really helped me when I was a teenager. It really helped accept myself and have better esteem because of that. But then those are the three things that, you know, we learn about God. He has all knowledge and he has all presence and he has all power. But then David kind of turns it around and he says, now I want to talk about ourselves. Here's a little truth about ourselves. We are broken and we are fallen and we need repair. David divides Psalm 139 into four truths, three about God, one about us. And the three about God should cause us to think about the one about us. And the one about us is that we're not God. We don't have all power. We don't have all knowledge. We don't have all those abilities. We're not everywhere, right? I know you think your mom had that when you were a little kid, right? Eyes in the back of your head. Okay. But we don't have that. Here's what we have. We have sin. We have struggle. We have pain. We have evil in our existence. David says this, if only you would slay the wicked, O God. It's like, hold on. That doesn't flow with the rest of the poem, right? It's like all these great things about God. It's like, now kill wicked people. It's like, wow. Yeah, what did he hiccup or something and, you know, make something wrong? Or did he get a bad flu bug when he wrote the time of this verse? It's like, it seems like a total turn, right? Maybe out of place. If only you would slay the wicked, oh God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. Uh, some commentators think that David was being pursued when he wrote this. Uh, some just think that he was acknowledging sin and brokenness. That's where I fall. I think that once you see the holiness and the beauty and the perfection of God and you look in the mirror, it's like, I'm not, okay? And other people are not. And we go, but wait a minute, this doesn't sound like Jesus and telling us to be nice little Christian boys or girls and love everybody and never complain about anything, right? Well, that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is there is righteousness and there is sinfulness. And that God looks at certain things. In fact, several passages of scripture are very clear. There's certain things God loves and there's certain things God hates. It's like, wow, look at this. He says, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord. I mean, you can be a Christian and hate things. That's what David says. There are things that should cause us anger. If you never get mad at anything, then you're not a very just person. All right. You're just a milk toast person, but a just person gets angry at injustices, gets mad at the evildoers that perpetuate things. If seriously, right? I mean, if you were to stand there and you look at uh, pornographers, people that are making movies, if you were to look at child abusers, if you were to look at people that are making crack cocaine, if you were to look at all those things, you go, I just, I just want to give you a hug, right? No. Now. They're just perpetuating their life, but the evil within them is perpetuating evil throughout the world, right? I mean, rulers, have you ever seen a dictator? And you go, I would like to have dinner with you. No, they'll serve you on the plate, right? Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord. We got to be honest, folks. There are some things that should get us angry, good and angry, because they get God angry. And he lists things in the Bible. He says, these are things I hate. We should study those things. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. But then in a really cool way, I'm imagining 
he turns the spotlight once again back on him. And he, he wraps up the psalm like he started the psalm. Search me, O God. At the beginning, he says, search me and know me, right? And now he finishes by saying, search me and reveal to me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Put me to the test, God. Examine me. Open me up again. See if there's any offensive way in me. And that cool? I mean, it's, it's, it's natural to see that in other people. But now, God, I want you to search me and show me my sin. Show me my errors and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a psalm of just wonder of God and in the reality of our own lives. And if we are like David, amazed at God, angry at sin, and then asking God to search us, we get what he's saying. In fact, here's kind of the wrap up of it. Here's the kind of the summation of Psalm 139. God knows us intimately. We can't deceive him. You can't hide from him. Again, that shouldn't threaten you. It should bring peace to you. Uh, God is with us constantly. We can't escape him. God made us wonderfully. We can't ignore him. God sees us truthfully. We dare not reject him. We dare not try to push God out of our lives because he's everywhere around us. He's present in the people around us. He's present in the ability that we see to actually see him. He's orchestrated the communication when people have told us things about God, when we've gone to church, when we've read something, maybe seen something, opened the Bible and read something. He's got this master plan of drawing you to himself. Now, not everybody's going to accept him. There, there are some of you here that internally, nobody else knows this. You've already said, I'm not interested in God. I'm just kind of like coming to church because I have to. Okay. God's not going to force himself on you, but he's going to try to win you with his love and draw you to himself because he loves you. And what he wants is for us to respond in kind with a loving, heartfelt relationship to where we could say like David, God, You just amaze me that you know everything about me and you see everything and you, you have all this ability and I can't hide from you. And man, I just want more of you to reveal the darkness, the the parts of my life where I'm not trusting, where I'm not faithful. And we come to this honest admission before God, God, search me and know me, reveal any wickedness in me because I want to be more like you, not Not like perfectly holy or, you know, knowing all things or having the all ability. I just want to be more like Jesus. You, when you showed up in this human body and you live this earth, I want to be like that. So God, I don't want any hidden closets in my life. I don't want any bad habits in my life. I just want you to show me how I can become more and more like you. That's God's desire for us. But we fall short, right? We, in our own heart... We struggle being that honest with God. Man, we struggle being that honest with each other. We've known people for years. They've never seen parts of our lives. People who uh, finally come to the point of openness and honesty, when they unpack everything, people sit there and go, wow, we never knew. We never knew all that. Because we are good liars. We are good hiders and good fakers. Why is that? Well, let's go back to the garden, to the very beginning When we sinned against God, let's go back before that. It says in Genesis chapter two, verse 25, that the man and woman, Adam and Eve, they were naked, but they felt no shame. There was no reason for shame because there was no brokenness in the relationship. But then sin came, the fall, the deception, the rebellion, 
And from that moment on, we've had it in our world and we still will struggle with that. The day God returns and finishes everything and recreates it all, we will all struggle with our shame. I mean, think about your own life. Forget other people right now. There are parts of your life that you've never revealed to anyone. There are things that you've done. There are things that you've seen. There are things that people have done to you that you've never told anyone. Why? Because you're ashamed. We all have this center core of shame and sin. And we don't know what to do with it, so we try to fix it ourselves. It's awesome. We are really good at saving ourselves for a while. (laughs) We have this great self-salvation plan. Because of our brokenness, we work on it. We fix ourselves. We polish ourselves up. Some of us, maybe we work on it. We excel at our jobs and everybody looks at us and we're like the star student or the star employee because we want people to see that because we don't want them to see what's deeper. Or we're really popular. We're really beautiful. And we, we go out for all that. And we people want to be around us. And cameras flash and all that stuff. And Because we want people to see that. But we don't want them to see the real self. Oh, we're really funny. We're really humorous. We're, we're the jokester. We're the comedian. But we don't want people to see the real truth. Is that we're broken inside. Do you marvel when comedians kill themselves? When comedians reveal their depression? See, all those things we do. When, when people in Hollywood go, I just wish I were prettier. It's like, excuse me? You know, I wish my nose was smaller or bigger. I wish I, it's like, are you kidding? We look, you're on the magazine. See, because every one of us struggles when people who have wealth and people who have power are never ending on the pursuit of that. It's like, isn't there at some point an end to that? Isn't there at some point satisfaction? No, because it's always an attempt to continue to save ourselves. And that works, my friends, until it doesn't work anymore. And anybody that's come to the end of that, um, I love hanging out with uh, people in our AA group or NA group. Um, I was talking to one of my friends. He leads our AA group on Saturday night. And I saw on Facebook this last week, he said, 13 years clean and sober. I was like, yes, that's awesome. That's exciting. 13 years. And he still stands up and says, hey, my name is, and I'm an alcoholic. Because he never wants to forget the self-revelation of his brokenness. Now, he doesn't have the same struggles, but he confesses. Wouldn't it be awesome if we walked into the foyer this next weekend, as I'm greeting you out there, I said, hey, my name is James, you know, and here's my struggle. And we all kind of confessed. We'd have nobody at church next week, by the way, if that were the case. (laughs) I'm all going to go camping next weekend, right? Yeah, yeah, right. But can you imagine, can you imagine a group of people that were so deathly honest to reveal their brokenness and sinfulness? Well, I believe you'd have the church because the truth is, is that when we reveal all that, we're honest enough with others because we've been honest with God and we come to the end and we stop white knuckling it. We say, okay, God, I am broken. I am sinful. And Jesus comes in and he gives us true salvation, not silly self-salvation methods, but true salvation. And then he looks at us and he says, you are holy and you are blameless in my sight. I know we'll still struggle till we get new bodies and this new heaven and new earth. I get all that. But God looks at us and he's covered our sin, my friends, in Jesus Christ. And he looks at you completed and perfect, 
holy in his sight. And he says, why don't you live up to that? Why don't you, why don't you confess freely to each other? James says, confess your sins to one another and be healed. Find a community where you can be completely transparent and talk about all your sins and all your struggles and find healing and wholeness in that. I really believe that if we as followers of Christ, the church did this, people wouldn't look at us and call us hypocrites anymore. They would look at us and wonder, why are we so deathly honest about our sin? It'd be scary until they realize that's healing to be truthful. There's a God that loves you. He's a personal God. He's all around you. He's everywhere. He knows everything about you. And he created you masterfully. He wants to know you. It's going to require you to know your own sin, though, and brokenness and come to the point of confession like David said. And say, yeah, there's evil out there, but there's evil in me. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know if there's any anxious way in me. I want you to lead me in this path that's everlasting. Now, David didn't know this, but he was talking about ultimately what Jesus would do for you and for me. Because when Jesus came, he opened the way for us to know God intimately, without fear, without shame, and without sin because of what Jesus did, not what we do. So that's just what I urge you to do, my friends, is to look in the mirror today. For some of you, a lot of you, probably maybe the majority of us were, you know, churchgoers, Christians, followers of Christ. And we, you know, have already confessed our sin to God. Hey, why don't we confess our sin to one another? Why don't we get a small group of friends who we just pour out our true self to them, our fears, our failures, and find honest people that are willing to encourage us, hold us accountable be real with us. Encourage us on the journey. For some of you here, you have never done that even with God. And your false salvation is not working. Maybe it's working for a while. It's going to fall apart, my friends. It's going to break. And one day, you're going to be staring at your brokenness and sin. And would you please look up to God? In fact, why don't you do it today? And come to the point before you have to crash. You don't have to crash. You don't have to blow it up. You can come to him and say, today, I want you to search me, God. Today, I want you to heal me. Today, I want you to give me true salvation through Jesus. I want to know you like David did. Would you pray with me? Father God, David's words are threatening if we're hiding. David's words are fearful if we're running. David's words are offensive if we're proud. But David's words are beautiful if we're honest and broken before you and each other. So may we see like David saw and open our heart to you and reveal to you the truth. Cause you to search our hearts and know us and reveal to us any wickedness, any waywardness. And lead us in a way that's everlasting, that brings honor and truth. And may that be what the world around sees. People bearing each other's burdens, confessing their sins, being honest and transparent and being a place of healing hope not of hypocrisy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.